Welcome to the 144th podcast and the 114th as a city on a hill church. This is part three of our year-end prophecy update, and it's entitled Iran, Israel, and UFOs. Just like last week's part two, this message is jaw-dropping. Before it's over, you'll want to tell your unsaved friends and family that time's running short, and we'd all better take stock in our relationship with Christ. Again, like last week's, stay till the end. You owe it to yourself and those you love. And for the same reason, share this message immediately after you hear it. Now, to take you where the latest news is taking all of us, here is Pastor Michael Clark. Okay, today is part three of an end times sermon that I started the last Sunday in 2019. I continued it last Sunday. This will be the third message of a series entitled, Behold, I Come Quickly. And depending on how far I get today, we may have one more message next week. So I am not going to try and uh, get through uh, all of the information if we run out of time. I don't want to force it or, or push too much information out there. Uh, we've had a tremendous response to these sermons. I think we've had uh, over 150 views on YouTube of these last two messages, uh, not to mention the podcast. 2,000, Bill, on the podcast in the last, since we started the podcast, 2,000 downloads. Yeah, so I mean, the word is getting out there, guys. It's, it's just, it, it's a marvel to see what God is doing. I think in total we have over 750 downloads or views of our sermons in the last 30 days. So that's a big deal for a church our size. So we're uh, excited about what the Lord is doing with our online ministry. They're getting the word out. Obviously, this is an important subject. It's an interesting subject, talking about the second coming of Christ and so this morning's message, we're picking up where we left off last week, looking at the war in the Middle East with Iran, and I've entitled this message, Iran, Israel, and UFOs. So recapping from last Sunday, last Sunday we were looking at the idea of asteroids that are predicted to hit the earth. I encourage you to listen to last week's message if you weren't here, uh, to, to hear about some of the concerns of our uh, leaders. The leaders of the world's governments are concerned that the earth is going to be hit imminently with an asteroid. They're not telling us when or, or which asteroid. They're not publicly uh, naming any specific asteroid, but there is a uh, a, a very real possibility that we will be hit uh, in 2029 by the asteroid Apophis, April 13th, 2029, and that this is why you see so much money being put into a, a new space race to get back into outer space. Why do we need to go back to Mars? Why all of a sudden? We can't live at the bottom of the ocean at 35,000 feet under the ocean. Why would we want to put a, uh, a you know, human habitation on Mars and spend trillions of dollars to go to Mars? To me, there's another reason that the governments of the world are putting billions and billions of dollars into space, new space exploration to try and get as quickly as we can back into outer space. Uh, and, and so I encourage you to listen uh, to last week's message if you weren't here because... Uh, there's very possibly a, a 
uh, a cover-up of information that they don't want the public to know if there would be an imminent asteroid threat. And the director of NASA has said on record there's a 100% chance we're going to get hit by a major asteroid in our lifetime, no doubt about it. Uh, and so uh, is it possible that they know that this is coming and yet they do not want to create uh, panic and worldwide instability and the breakdown of government and anarchy and so forth if we knew we were going to get hit by an asteroid the size of the Empire State Building in 2029. <clears throat> it's interesting that the Bible predicted that in the last days the stars would fall from the heavens as we looked at uh, last week. We looked at war in the Middle East, the lead up to the battle of Armageddon, how the, uh, in the last days, in the end times, the armies of the world will surround Jerusalem. Uh, this is what Jesus declared in Matthew 24. This is what the prophet Zechariah tells us in Zechariah chapter 12, also in Zechariah chapter 14. And so we know that, that Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, uh, is going to be the center, the hub of, uh, of the world right before the second coming of Christ. And eventually, the Antichrist and his armies at the Battle of Armageddon are going to come, and they are going to surround Jerusalem. And so we would expect to see, if we were living in the last days, wars in the Middle East. We would expect to see uh, Israel back in their land. This is what we do see today. We would expect to see Jerusalem as a heavy stone which no one can lift. They can't move Jerusalem. They can't split Jerusalem. They can't divide Jerusalem. It's a heavy stone which no one can lift, as Zechariah 12, uh, verses 1 to 3 tell us. And that's exactly what we see today. Jerusalem is the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. There's many powerful groups that are concerned and nations that are concerned with the little tiny city of Jerusalem and the little tiny nation uh, of Israel. And so this is all predicted to be the case in the last days. Now, prior to the attack of the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus Christ actually uh, comes in to save Israel and to save the nation uh, at that time of Israel and the Jews at his second coming. That's, that's at the end of the tribulation period. But prior to that, Israel is going to be invaded by a confederacy of nations, uh, four of which are listed for us, or we know as Russia, Turkey, Libya, and Iran. This is a prophecy that Ezekiel made uh, 600 years before Christ, 550 years before Christ, a prophecy that has never been fulfilled in Israel's history. So we, we know it is still yet future. And we know that all of the players that are mentioned are already there uh, now, right at Israel's border. Russia, Turkey, Libya, and Iran. Now, Ezekiel chapter 38, this is where we left off last week. We're going to pick right back up where we left off last Sunday in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 8. We read this prophecy. After many days, you will be summoned in the latter years. The latter years would mean it's another phrase or term for the last days. Whenever you see the latter years mentioned in prophecy in the Old Testament, it's speaking about the last days or the end times of the New Testament. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations, 
to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out of the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. So we have a bunch of uh, specific factors given here in this one verse. It's going to be in the latter years this is going to happen. The last days. That's indicating the time of the end, the end times. These nations are going to come into a land that is restored from the sword. This is the land of Israel, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations, which the Jews were scattered to the four winds. They were dispersed to the whole world, and now they are all, since 1948 and after the Holocaust, regathered from the whole world back into the nation of Israel. So this has already happened. They've been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. If you go back and you look at the history of the land of Israel, it was a complete uh, disaster when the Jews came back into the land. The first Zionists came back into the land, Theodore Herzl and those in the early 1900s, the eight, late 1800s. Uh, came from Britain and from Europe, and they started to resettle in the promised land, in the Holy Land. And it was not a land flowing with milk and honey. As a matter of fact, Samuel Clemens, the writer Mark Twain, uh, said that uh, he went to visit the Holy Land. This would have been in the late 1800s when he was alive. He expected to find it, as the Bible said, as a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, he said there was nothing there but a bunch of rocks and mountain goats. And he says, and for all I could tell, the mountain goats must have eaten the rocks because there was nothing else growing there. This is Mark Twain in the late 1800s. It was filled with uh, 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 mud and and swampland and mosquitoes and malaria uh, because the Ottoman Turks, as they controlled the land of Israel from 1517 until the end of World War I in 1917, the Turks, which were Muslims, who controlled... Uh, the Holy Land, they decimated the land. They denuded the land of all the trees. And so uh, with no trees, all the trees were cut down. And with no trees, uh, you had all of the runoff from the rains and the, uh, uh, you know, basically everything just ran into the sea and just became bogs and marshes and swampland. And, uh, and so it was only when the Jews came back into their land that they began to clear the swamps and uh, uh, drain the the sludge and plant trees and plant groves and plant crops. And now Israel is one of the most prolific agricultural areas in the world. If you've ever gone to Israel, everything is green. They are the ones who came up with the invention of drip irrigation. That came from the nation of Israel. Many of our inventions actually come from Israeli scientists and come from the nation of Israel. Uh, But they actually are an exporter of fruits and vegetables to Europe. They're one of the main exporters of fruits and vegetables to the the European continent. Uh, But they were a land that was a continual waste up until 1917, 1935, 1945, when they came back into the land, especially after 1948, when they became a nation again. So they've been gathered from many nations back to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. All of that has happened. Its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Are the Jews living securely today? You bet they are. They don't have any fears. The Jews feel very comfortable, very safe, uh, because of their technology, because of their military prowess, uh, because of their... uh, 
uh, Mossad and Bet Shin, their intelligence services are the best intelligence services in the world. They have spies everywhere throughout the Middle East. Uh, they have the finger. They probably are the ones actually that gave us uh, the uh, information, the intel that led us to killing this Iranian general. As a matter of fact, that's what the Iranians have said: is it was the Israelis who told the Americans where to kill this guy, which is probably absolutely true, because the Israelis know everything about what's going on in the Middle East. And so they're dwelling very securely. Uh, They are very comfortable back in their homeland. So all of these indicators in this prophecy written 2,600 years ago concerning a war that was imminent in the last days in Israel, all of this has already happened. Now he's talking, God is talking to the nations that are going to come and invade uh, the Jews. Verse 9, he says, you will go up, you will come like a storm. This is the invading army, this confederacy of nations. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about in that day that thoughts will come into your mind. You will devise an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely. All of them living without walls, having no bars, or gates. You know, once you get into Jerusalem, uh, into the Holy Land that the Jews control, you feel very safe, very secure. You're not going through checkpoints all the time, or bars, or gates, or gated cities. Jerusalem's not a gated city. You walk right through the city, unless you're coming from East Jerusalem, from the Palestinian areas. They have a very difficult time getting into the Jewish areas. Uh, But once you're in Israel, you're free to go anywhere. I mean, of course, you have to have a a tour guide, but... um, it, it, it's like this. Everyone's at rest. Uh, uh, everyone's dwelling without walls, without bars, without gates. He says in verse 12, the reason that you're coming here is to capture spoil and to seize plunder and to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods and who live at the center of the world. Verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, all with its villages, will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder and to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Now, it's interesting. We don't know who all of these nations are. Some of them, there's a question mark. Some of them, we know exactly who they are. For example, Persia. We know Persia is modern-day Iran, no doubt about that. Uh, Sheba and Dedan, the ones who are protesting this invasion, they're not defending Israel, but they're also not attacking Israel. They're not joining this confederacy to attack the Jews. They're, they're petitioning, they're questioning, uh, they're, they're pro, uh, protesting that they're attacking, but they're not doing anything about it. It's interesting, Bible scholars tell us that Sheba and Dedan are actually modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, it is interesting, when this was written 2,600 years ago, who would have known that in the last days, the Persians, who were always the friends of the Jews, would become the enemies of the Jews, which happened in 1979 with the Islamic Revolution, ousting the Shah, the Ayatollah Khomeini, coming in and taking power, making uh, uh, Iran or Persia into an Iranian uh, 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 Islamic republic ruled by Sharia law. But through most of uh, of Persia's history, they were an ally and a friend 
to Israel, to the Jews. And so it's kind of strange that you would read a prophecy that Persia would be attacking Israel uh, because that wouldn't be usual. That would be unusual, but today we would expect it. The Iranians have declared they want to wipe Israel off the map. Also, Sheba and Dedan, modern-day Saudi Arabia, we would expect that the Saudis would be part of this attack. The Saudis would be part of the Islamic uh, attack against Israel, against the Jews. But as you know, the Jews are now allies and partners with Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia not only is not participating in this war, this attack, as you would kind of expect if you were thinking of guessing the future, but they are protesting this attack because they are now friends of the Jews. As a matter of fact, you would expect if you look at Israel's history, Egypt would be attacking the Jews. Egypt is not mentioned here. Why? Because right now in the last days, the Egyptians are friends of the Jews. They have peace treaties. They have trade that takes place. As we're going to see in a minute, the Jews are selling them natural gas. You would expect that the Moabites or the Edomites, the modern-day Jordanians, would be part of this attack because the Moabites and the Edomites always attacked Israel in the Old Testament times, but they are not mentioned here. Interesting, modern-day Jordan today, ancient Edom and, and the land of Esau, Moab, they are now also allied with the Jews there in the Middle East. The Jordanians and the Jews have a great partnership, friendship, working relationship, even though the Jordanians are Muslim. In addition, the Babylonians are not mentioned here. You would think that if Israel was being invaded, it would be its ancient enemy of Babylon or of Assyria. But that is not mentioned either. In Babylon and Assyria are modern-day Iraq. And so Iraq is not going to participate in this invasion. Just so interesting, all of these specifics about this prophecy really could not have happened until uh, the days in which we live when all of these alliances and uh, allegiances are in place. So they're going to protest the fact that they're invading Israel. Sheba and Dedan, modern-day Saudi Arabia, are going to protest that they are coming to attack Israel, to capture spoil, to seize plunder. Verse 14 continues, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? And you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days. There you have it again. This is going to happen in the last days. That I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So this is how we know that the Russians are Gog and Magog. If you go back to, to verse 2 of Ezekiel 38, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So you have the land of Magog and you have the prince of Rosh that are mentioned here. Then we are told that they are coming, verse 15, out of the remote parts of the north, the furthest north that you could get on the map. And if you look at a map, you look at a flat map of the world, 
where Israel is the center of the world. On a flat map, Israel is the center of the world. And in God's eyes, Israel is the center of the world. And Jerusalem is the center of the world. You go directly north on a map of Israel. Go do it today if you want. Go directly north, as far north as you can go. And what nation are you going to be in? You're going to be in Russia. And so uh, these are the Russians that are coming down. Now, Beth Targumah, which is another nation that's mentioned in verse 6. Verse 5 is Persia, which we know. Ethiopia, which is probably still modern-day Ethiopia. It was also called Cush. Ethiopia, by the way, is, is a, a stronghold of El-Shabaab and the, and the Muslims uh, today. Uh, Put, which is modern-day Libya, which is an Islamic republic as well, uh, allied with uh, Turkey. And then you have uh, Beth Targumah in verse 6. Now, Beth Targumah is the land, and we know this from the ancient maps, the land where modern-day Turkey is. Now, it's interesting that Beth Targumah is also called from the remote parts of the north. But again, if you go due north of Israel in, in, its, uh, in, in its closer vicinity in the Middle East, you are in Turkey. If you go all the way north to the end of the map before you hit the North Pole, you're in Russia. So we know from just these little hints, these indicators, plus uh, uh, Bible theologians, you know, you could go listen to J. Vernon McGee, who passed away in the early 1980s. He will tell you the same things I'm telling you today. The Bible scholars have known these nations uh, since they've been studying this for the last couple hundred years of Bible prophecy. It's only now, though, in our generation that all of the players are in place. All of the pieces of the puzzle are in place. It's like a chess game, and all of the, the pieces are on the chess board. So we have Turkey, we have Iran, we have Ethiopia, we have Libya, and we have Russia in addition to a couple of other nations. They're all going to come at a time when the Jews are living securely, and the Jews have spoils that they want to come in and seize from the nation of Israel. You remember last week, uh, I read an article about how the Jews had just began production of removing gas and selling gas from the Leviathan gas field in the Mediterranean Sea. This is another article that came out since I taught this sermon last Sunday about Israel and about the natural gas of of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea, making them a powerhouse in energy in the Middle East. This article is from Prophecy News Watch. It says, Foreshadowing of Ezekiel's Spoil, Israel's Natural Gas treasure the start of natural gas flows from the leviathan rig is a momentous achievement for the state of israel for the first time a resource poor country can become an energy superpower the export of natural gas to immediate neighbors jordan and egypt so notice there the jordanians and the egyptians are not mentioned in this attack uh, because they're allied with the jews now because the jews are selling them energy Jordan and Egypt are turning uh, to, let me back up here, the export of natural gas to immediate neighbors Jordan and Egypt and later exported via Cyprus and Greece into Europe strengthens Israel's geopolitical status both in the Middle East as well as the West. 
In addition to formal peace alliances and security cooperation, Jordan and Egypt are turning to Israel to provide for their energy needs. In the past, Egypt exported gas to Israel. Israel already supplies Jordan with water. The cooperation is likely to lead to further uh, normalized ties with the other Sunni Gulf states, which would include Saudi Arabia. Natural gas flow via a pipeline shared by Cyprus, Greece, and Italy will link Israel more closely with Europe. An aggressive pipeline project to Italy would be among the deepest and longest underwater pipeline projects ever completed. Together with Israel's ability to desalinate water, the country now has the ability to keep the lights on and water flowing well into the future. In other words, they're dwelling securely right now. Exports will generate tens of billions of dollars in tax revenues for the Israeli government. In addition, natural gas will completely replace coal as an Israeli energy source, which is expected to significantly lower air pollution. In the time since gas at Leviathan was initially discovered, Israel has emerged into a regional defense superpower and a technical superpower that now boasts a top 10 global economy. Israel's military strength has grown significantly too. Israel has developed an immense qualitative edge over its enemies, including two new squadrons of F-35s, precision-guided missiles, advanced missile defense, including the Iron Dome Arrow, David Sling, and Patriot systems, naval destroyers, submarines, all in addition to some of the world's most powerful weaponry. Not to mention they are a nuclear-armed power as well, obviously. And while Leviathan is the second largest reserve found in the Mediterranean to date, it is extremely likely that significant additional quantities of natural gas are present in Israeli territorial waters. So if the stated purpose of this invasion is to seize spoils of war, we now see that Israel has something that everybody wants. They want these gas reserves and these gas lines. Now the Russians are threatened by anyone who would attempt to begin to sell natural gas to Europe because half of Europe or more, maybe 60% of the European heat for the winters comes from Russian natural gas that's piped in from Russia into Europe. That's why the Europeans usually don't stand up to Russia very often. We will in the United States because we don't need the natural gas from Russia. Uh, But the Europeans, you notice, they placate the Russians, they try and appease the Russians and so forth. Why? Because if the Russians were to cut off their supply of natural gas, in other words, they've got them somewhat over a barrel. Uh, They have a monopoly on uh, exporting natural gas into Europe. And so what can the Europeans do if they protest too loud against the Russians or they complain too much against the Russians? They could just shut off the valves and turn off the gas and turn off the power and the heat to uh, the European continent. And so this is a direct threat to Russia. As you see, they are going to pipe this natural gas from the Mediterranean Sea in Israel all the way to southern Europe into Italy. And from Italy, you'd be able to get it all the way up into the rest of Europe if you wanted to, theoretically. And so all, again, all of these pieces of the puzzle are in place. Now, 
This is a time probably in Israel's long history where they are the most confident. If you look at their long 4,000-year history all the way back to Abraham, they probably have never been more powerful militarily, economically, and so forth, politically, than they are uh, today. They're certainly dwelling securely in their land. They're not afraid of anything anything or anyone. Um, they are independent. They have uh, self-sufficiency. They have their own energy needs met now. They have their own water needs met because of their desalination plants, as we just read. They are strong economically and militarily. So all of this would fall in line with the prophecy uh, of, of the timing of this attack. Now, it's interesting. Um, Israel just developed a laser weapon to knock out drones and to take down satellites or to actually take out missiles. And this is another article that uh, came out last week in Prophecy News Watch. Israel reveals breakthrough in laser-based aerial defense system. I mean, some of this stuff seems like Star Wars. You know, it seems like science fiction, Star Trek stuff, but it's real. Israel's defense ministry announced on Wednesday that a breakthrough has been made in using laser beams to thwart aerial attacks. According to Israel's Channel 13, The technological development will enable the long-range targeting and stabilization of laser beams, allowing them to intercept targets at great distances. Duty Ouster of the Optotronics Department at the Defense Ministry said, quote, We can finally arrive at an effective laser weapons system that can cut through the iron of rockets and missiles from kilometers away, unquote. The system will be tested as early as the second half of 2020 and will then be deployed near the southern border with the Gaza Strip to complement the Iron Dome. It was developed by the Defense Ministry in collaboration with Israeli companies Rafael Advanced Defense Systems and Elbit Systems. The laser system will cost a great deal less per inception than the Iron Dome and is capable of intercepting targets as small as drones and as large as precision missiles. So, yeah, the Jews are, devel- they, they are dwelling securely uh, in their land. They're really not afraid uh, of their enemies. And that is the time uh, when they are going to be unexpectedly invaded by these nations. Now, Israel is going to be surprised by this attack, and they are going to be overwhelmed by this attack, according to the prophecy, but they're not going to have to fight in this, uh, this battle or fight this war because God is going to fight for them. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 19, we read, God speaking still, And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him. I shall rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And I shall magnify myself 
sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. And so God is going to turn this invading army, number one, against themselves. They're going to start to attack each other. Each man's sword will be against his brother. And then he is going to bring this fire and brimstone and hailstones and and torrential rain down from heaven against the invading army. God is going to stand up and defend his people Israel. Now chapter 39 verse 1 continues, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Again, this is another name for modern-day Russia. I shall turn you around, drive you on, and take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I shall strike your bow from your left hand, and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall in the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. Verse 6, And I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I shall not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So this is a war that's never happened in Israel's history. So that means it's still future. Uh, all of the players are in, in place. All the alliances and allegiances are in place. It hasn't happened yet, but we know it's going to happen. Uh, and, and it's interesting that God says this in verse 8 and 9. He says, Behold, it is coming. It shall be done, declares the Lord God, the day of which I've spoken. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. And for seven years, they will make fires of them. So they're going to take whatever the invading army was bringing against them and they're going to utilize it for their own energy needs, apparently, or for their own uses there in the nation of Israel. They're going to take spoils uh, from their enemies because they came to take spoils from Israel. But notice there that it's mentioned that there's going to be a seven-year period of time that's going to elapse here where Israel's in the land after this attack, which means this is not the Battle of Armageddon because the Battle of Armageddon's at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And when Jesus comes back, he ends it all. He ends the the rebellion. He ends the Antichrist reign, and he sets up his kingdom. So this is before Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom, at least seven years before, because seven years are mentioned. Many Bible scholars believe that this war in the Middle East with Russia, Iran, and, and Turkey is going to take place possibly simultaneously with the rapture of the church. Because the rapture of the church is going to kick off the seven-year tribulation period where God ends the church age and then pivots and turns back to the nation of Israel to begin to fulfill all of Israel's uh, Old, Old Testament and ancient prophecies to save and deliver them and to set up a kingdom with and for the Jews in Jerusalem. And so it is possible that as the world is focused on the Middle East, as, as the news headlines are filled and the news cameras are filled with footage from this war in the Middle East in Israel, 
that quietly, secretly, privately, in a, in, a, in a twinkling of an eye, the church is taken. And then they're going to look around and say, where did all the Christians go? You know, they were just here. Uh, sadly, I don't think the rapture, if all the Christians born again, Christians are taken out of America, I don't think it's going to have much of an effect on America anymore. I don't think there are that many Christians left in America. Uh, our greatest generation of Christians is all passing away the greatest generation that fought in World War II that lived through the, the Depression. And, uh, and so I don't know that it's going to be that big of a deal when the rapture happens. I don't, I don't know that we're really going to be missed, quite frankly. Um, and so that's, that's uh, possible. It's theoretical. We don't know for a fact. But we do know that they are in their land for at least seven years after this invasion because seven years is mentioned here. So we know that Russia is there in Syria right now fighting that's on israel's border we know that turkey is aligned with russia turkey is actually also allied with libya which is mentioned here that is going to be part of this attack and then of course we have iran iran uh, iran is all over the middle east they're the ones that fund hamas in gaza in the gaza strip the terrorist group hamas uh, they fund hezbollah in lebanon on israel's border uh, they are there fighting to keep Assad in power in Syria. The Iranian regime is the one that propped up, so were the Russians, uh, Assad, uh, so that he could keep his dictatorship and, uh, and, and continue to oppress the people there in Syria. So you have Iran in Syria on Israel's border by the Golan Heights. You have Iran operating freely in Iraq. Uh, that's why Soleimani, this uh, general, was killed in Baghdad at the Baghdad airport. He had full access to the nation uh, of Iraq, even though this man was a total... Uh, terrorist so all of these players are there in the middle east so i want to read just an article quickly here a couple of articles about uh, uh kassam Soleimani when uh when we we took this uh this terrorist out this is the article from the new york post on january 3rd iran's u.n u.n ambassador calls the kassam Soleimani strike quote an act of war, unquote. Iran's ambassador, ambassador to the United Nations on Friday called the U.S. killing of top general Qasem Soleimani an act of war. Ambassador Malik Takhtet Ravanchi, in an interview on CNN, warned that there would be harsh revenge for the U.S. airstrike that killed the head of Iran's. Sorry, he keeps kicking me out here. Uh, of Iran's elite Quds Force early on Friday. So this man was the head of the Quds Force and he was the, ha the head of the Revolutionary Guard, the military wing of the Islamic Republic of Iran. He was the top general, he was the top strategist, uh, and he was, a, he was a brutal terrorist who had the blood of many American soldiers uh, and American civilians on his hands. He says, this was an act of war on the part of the United States against the Iranian people. <clears throat> Earlier on Friday, President Trump told reporters that Soleimani had to be taken out to protect American lives, saying, Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and we terminated him, unquote. That's President Trump speaking. Uh, Time Magazine article, January 3rd. 
Iran has vowed revenge against the U.S. for killing Qasem Soleimani. Here's what may happen next. In the long-running shadow war across the Middle East, the United States and Iran have avoided direct confrontation at all costs. Their tense and unpredictable conflict has unfolded instead in covert operations through proxy forces, subterfuge, and sabotage. So President Donald Trump's order on Thursday to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, military commander of Iran's elite Quds Force, in a high-profile drone strike outside the Baghdad airport has plunged the two adversaries into uncharted territory. Soleimani, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Major General who reported directly to Iran's supreme theocratic ruler, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, helped build, organize, fund, and deploy constellations of Shiite militias, mounting insurgencies in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. Soleimani projected an image as a master of the Middle Eastern chessboard posting selfies from battlefields across the region. Venerated among legions of devotees, Soleimani cultivated an international following. The death of a man considered a hero by millions is a tectonic event that carries unknown consequences for Washington and Tehran and risks igniting a wider conflict that could engulf the Middle East. Khamenei called for three days of mourning on Friday, but promised vengeance. His demise will not stop his mission, Khamenei said, according to the Fars News Agency, a semi-official news outlet in Iran. He continues, but the criminals who have the blood of General Soleimani and other martyrs of the attack on their hands must await a tough revenge, unquote. The Trump administration, for its part, says it killed Soleimani in order to stave off more bloodshed. American officials said that the U.S. received intelligence that Soleimani was planning another attack in the region. Over the past six months, Iran has been blamed for several high-profile security incidents, including the protests outside the U.S. embassy in Iraq, the shoot-down of a U.S. surveillance drone over the Strait of Hormuz, the sabotage and seizure of several oil tankers near the Persian Gulf, the aerial bombardment of oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, and a rocket attack on a military base in Iraq which killed an American contractor and injured four U.S. service members. So Donald Trump showed a tremendous amount of patience with this terrorist. I mean, uh, he shot down a $185 million drone of ours, and President Trump thanked him that he didn't shoot down a manned drone, that he shot down an unmanned drone, didn't kill any of us, any of our soldiers. Uh, they attacked oil facilities in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, taking half of uh, Iran, uh, um, Saudi oil production offline. And uh, the Saudis did not retaliate against Iran for that attack. The Americans did not retaliate for that attack. Um, it's been an ongoing escalation where uh, the Iranians and this man, Soleimani, have been stepping up their attacks against America and Americans' allies in the Middle East. And we have not responded yet until now when they killed an American, and that was the red line that they crossed. Trump said, if you touch any of our American civilian contractors or soldiers, you're going to pay the price. And we basically cut the head off the snake. We took out the top military, brilliant military general in Iran who was, who was running uh, Hezbollah, who's running Hamas, who's running the Houthi rebels and the civil war in Yemen, 
all of this is being funded by Iran, uh, the war against uh, ISIS in Syria. Um, all of these wars, the Shiite militias in Iraq, were all run by this man, Soleimani, and now he's gone. He is completely removed from the battlefield. <clears throat> now, we know that they attacked one of our bases in retaliation, or a couple of uh, Iraq's bases where we had troops after those articles on January 3rd. January 8th, 2020, so last week, the BBC reports, several blasts shook the Baghdad area hours after a huge funeral procession for a top Iranian general killed by a U.S. airstrike there on Friday. Iran had warned of grave, grave repercussions on Wednesday morning. Iran followed through, launching numerous missiles at two Iraqi bases housing American troops. A projectile hit the green zone near the U.S. Embassy, while several more were fired north of the Iraqi capital at Balad Air Base, which houses U.S. forces. Interesting, nobody was hurt in the attacks, Iraqi security uh, forces said. Iranian leaders have vowed to avenge the killing of Qassam Soleimani, who was regarded as a terrorist by the U.S. Iraqis were also mourning the death of Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, an Iraqi who commanded the Iranian-backed Hatab Hezbollah group and was killed along with Soleimani. We got two birds for one stone. Talk out, took out two major terrorist leaders in one drone strike. It was beautiful because these guys were very evil men. Uh, killing innocent people, women and children, and so forth. No regard for human life. Um, but the reason that there were no casualties is because the Iranians notified the Iraqis before the attack came. In other words, they called the Iraqis and said, hey, we're about to attack these air bases. Get your people. We don't want to kill any Iraqis. Get your people out of there. Well, the Iraqis picked up the phone and called the Americans and said, hey, we just heard the Iranians are about to attack these two bases, so get ready. So we were all prepared when these missiles were launched and, and, and when they hit our bases. Everybody was bunkered down. Everybody was in safe places. Nobody was injured. Nobody was killed. Uh, and, and so it's, uh, it goes to show that the Iranians are not as tough as they portray themselves to be. They're actually quite afraid of America. Now, sadly, tragically, at the same time that they had launched these strikes, against uh, the Iraqi air bases housing U.S. forces, a Ukrainian jet blew up and crashed. It was flying out of Tehran airport. And initially, the Israelis were saying this plane was shot down uh, by a missile. The U.S. intelligence agencies were saying this plane was shot down by a missile. The British were saying this plane was shot down by a missile. The Canadians, the Ukrainians, everyone was saying this plane was brought down by a missile. For three days, the Iranians denied that and said, no, it was a bad plane. It was a 737 from America. It was a Boeing 737. We had nothing to do with it. Well, then they finally admitted that they shot it down out of the sky accidentally. January 10th, 2020, Iran says it accidentally shot down a Ukrainian jet. Iran admitted it accidentally shot down a Ukrainian jetliner that it mistook for a cruise missile, a dramatic reversal after days of denials that's likely to add pressure on an establishment locked in an economic and military confrontation with the United States. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, gave his condolences over the disaster, while President Hassan Rouhani said that the Islamic Republic, quote, deeply regrets the disastrous mistake, unquote, 
and vowed compensation for the families of the victims. Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 was flying close to a sensitive Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps military site when it was downed because of human error, the army said. After conducting its own investigation, the culprits would be identified and referred to judicial authorities, it said. So it's just a mess over there in Iran, guys. And uh, we need to pray for the Christians that are there because there's a tremendous, actually the fastest growing church in the world. You know where the fastest growing church, the most people are being converted in the world is? What nation? Iran right now. Iran. I received a publication from Voice of the Martyrs uh, two weeks ago and they said Iran is the fastest growing church, underground church in the world. There's a lot of Christians that are there. So pray uh, that this wicked regime would fall this Ayatollah and this wicked regime would fall so that our Christian brothers and sisters would be free to worship Jesus as we do here in our country. So we have all of these events in the Middle East. We've covered it this week and we covered it in some detail last week. Another end times uh, uh, prediction is that there's going to be an increase of demonic activity in the last days leading up to the return of Christ. You're going to have false prophets popping up all over the place who are performing miracles, lying signs, and wonders. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. Again, the, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, or rather the Olivet Discourse, second Sermon on the Mount, Mount of Olives, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 11, concerning his return, signs of the times. He says, many prophets, false prophets will arise, Matthew 24, 11, and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we have now preached the gospel to all the nations of the world. This prophecy has actually already been fulfilled. So Jesus says, after that happens, then the end shall come. Verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to get the things out, of, uh, out that are in his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you this in advance. And so there's going to be false prophets that are going to be performing miracles in, in the eyes of people. Miracles right before people's eyes. This is going to be one of the indications that you are living in the last days as you see demonic activity increase, as you see false prophets increase, and as you see lying signs and wonders uh, taking place through these false prophets increasing, you know that you are close to the end. 
Now, Revelation chapter 9 tells us that there's going to be an increase in sorcery or the practice of magic arts or demon worship. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons. The idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, nor did they repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. So this is going to be indicative of the last days. They're going to be practicing murder. Well, we see murder with abortion on demand throughout the civilized world as normalized, murdering the innocent unborn children in the mother's womb. Uh, They're not going to repent of their murders. Uh, They're not going to repent of their sorceries. Sorceries is the Greek word pharmakeia, from which we get the word pharmacy. Typically, it was related to shamans and medicine men uh, or, or priests or priestesses who would use drugs or alcohol to enter into an altered state of consciousness to basically call down evil spirits or call down demons to take possession of them or to open doors to the demonic realm. And so this indicates that there's going to be an increase in the last days of sorcery or magic or witchcraft or the occult that's going to be being practiced. Do we see an increase in witchcraft, the practice of the occult, astrology, even in the Western world today, in Europe and America? Yes, we do, like no time in our history. Witchcraft is being practiced, sorcery, pharmakia. Do we see mind-altering drug use being increased in our last days that we live in, in the days which we live? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's not, you know, the pot that people smoke, the marijuana that they smoke legally, recreationally today is a hundred times stronger or more than the pot that I used to smoke. Yes, I used to smoke pot when I was in high school. Uh, You know, it's a hundred times stronger than the weed we used to smoke when we were kids. Not that it's good. Kids don't smoke weed. You shouldn't do that. But I wasn't a Christian. I was doing what everyone else was doing, partying. But the weed that they smoke today is a hundred times stronger or more than the weed that was smoked 30 years ago, 25 years ago, 40 years ago in this country. And so it's, it's, it's opening up all kinds of Pandora's boxes when it comes to the spiritual realm. Because as you enter into an altered state of consciousness, you open yourself up to the demonic realm. Revelation chapter 13, where we're uh, taught about the Antichrist, and we'll spend more time here next week, but I just want to hit this real quick. In verse 11, Revelation 13, 11, speaking of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the mark of the beast, which <clears throat> we will look also at the mark of the beast next week. He says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Revelation 13, 11. He had two horns like a lamb. He spoke as a dragon. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so this false prophet is going to be the right-hand man of the devil's man, the Antichrist, and he is going to be performing miracles, great signs in the eyes of the people, where people are going to say, how did he do that? He's going to call fire down from heaven. There's going to be miracles that are going to be taking place that people can't explain naturally, supernatural things. And, uh, And so 
we would begin to expect to see these things taking place as we get closer to the end. And I believe that the idea of the UFOs and how everybody is now infatuated with aliens and UFOs, these are, are just very simply demons. These are the same demons that have been coming from the stars and from the skies for thousands of years. You study the Egyptians, they worship the stars. You study the Mayans, they worship the stars. You study the Aztecs, they worship the stars. You study uh, the Assyrians, they worship the stars. The Tower of Babel, they worshiped the stars. And they believed the Greeks, the Romans, all their gods came from the heavens, from the stars. And so we would expect to see if the demonic realm, if the veil is pulled back and the spirit realm gets closer and the demons get invited in through all of the uh, occult practices, all of the witchcraft, all of the sorcery, all of the drug use, opening the doors, pulling back the veil between the spirit realm and the physical realm, you're going to begin to see more and more apparitions of these spirits, and they're going to come in different ways, as uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch, as ghosts haunting houses, and so forth. It's all the same demonic realm that we're dealing with. But I want to share an article with you because... Uh, and, and this is where we're going to have to stop. But the um, the idea of, of UFOs, this article, I found it uh, funny. It's from the National Review magazine. It's kind of humorous, and I, I had to edit it down. But, uh, you know, that they basically have proven that there are UFOs that nobody can explain where they're from or what they are. And nobody, basically nobody cares. So this is the article. It came out of the sky in the National Review magazine from September 26, 2019. The, uh, the author says this, If, like me, you claim unofficial membership in the League of Enthusiastic Americans with slightly overactive imaginations, the past few weeks have brought exciting and weird news. Here's the exciting. The United States Navy has basically admitted that UFOs are real. Here's the weird. Very few people seem to care. Perhaps you've seen the video evidence, which has floated around the internet since 2017 after being leaked to the New York Times. In the footage recorded by Navy pilots, you can see mysterious unidentified aircraft, some surrounded by an enveloping glow, prompting various incredulous comments such as, look at that thing, dude, and wow, what is that, man? These objects, the Navy prefers, prefers we call them unexplained aerial phenomena, instead of UFOs, but come on, who are they kidding? Undertook aerial maneuvers that aren't possible with current aviation technology, Popular Mechanics reports. In the 2004 incident, according to the New York Times, the objects appeared suddenly at 80,000 feet, then hurtled toward the sea, eventually stopping at 20,000 feet and then hovering. Then they either dropped out of radar range or shot straight back up. Commander David Fravor, who piloted an F-A-18F Super Hornet that day over airspace near San Diego, told the Times of an object that hovered over the ocean, quote, around 40 feet long and oval in shape, unquote, jolting around above a churning uh, marine disturbance that looked like frothy waves and foam, as if the water were boiling. This is the eyewitness report, what he said it looked like. As he headed for the object, it fled, accelerating like nothing I've ever seen, he said. 
In the end, this whole bizarre ball of aeronautical wax left Commander Fravor, as he told the Times, pretty weirded out. No kidding, me too. But don't worry, the Navy would also like you to know, as Popular Mechanics helpfully adds, that the video clips, quote, should never have been released to the public in the first place, unquote. Ah, here's my no baloney translation for that, folks. Remember the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark where some anonymous elderly government worker in a newsboy cap slowly wheels the Ark of the Covenant into a giant warehouse undoubtedly full of other mystical and legendary treasures never to meet the public eye? There's almost definitely something like that for videos of UFOs. Now, to be fair, because these unidentified flying objects are, well, unidentified, we can't declare them the work of a band of extraterrestrial alien explorers just yet. Nor can we jump the gun and storm Area 51, as approximately 3,000 fun-loving Americans pretended to attempt to do. The potential explanations are countless, really. Perhaps the UFOs are part of a secret Russian spy operation. Perhaps the UFOs are part of a top-secret United States Air Force project, so top-secret the, the United States Navy knows nothing about it. Perhaps there's even some smart-aleck, high-IQ kid in La Jolla laughing his rear end off right now because he just fooled us all with his army of souped-up garage-built drones. Somehow, the great UFO video leakage of 2017 managed to waft away in a small cloud of news cycle pixie dust. In other words, UFOs, schmoo-FOs. Who cares? <laughs> and that's the truth. They said they have evidence there's UFOs, and you know what? Nobody cares. So we, we see things happening. We see signs in the skies. We see increased demonic activity, which eventually... Uh, is going to um, end with Satan himself coming to take up a, a body and to dwell within the Antichrist and his right-hand man, the false prophet, performing lying signs and wonders. All of these things were predicted to come with increased frequency and intensity like the birth pangs of a woman in labor about to give birth to a child. And that is exactly what we see happening today. I'm out of time, so like I said, we will pick up here next week, and we will have to finish this message next week. So, hope you come back for it. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.